This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review podcast. It's not really Monday. We're running behind, but it is the we're back with uh, more infectious disease. Daphna, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I wish we weren't running behind, but we'll we get caught up. <laughs> Who's that? Somebody literally started drilling just now. <laughs> Oh, okay. Drilling, I can deal with. I thought it was like a child, like moaning. It did sound like a crying baby. But yeah, I, I think was like, it's a drill. are you hiding? <laughs> did you steal a baby from the NICU, Daphna, and, and brought it home? <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get, get, get by without too much noise. <laughs> I think that's fine. I think that's fine. So, um, what is the, so we're going to, we're going to try to continue on the infectious mm-hmm. disease um, topic. It's, it's a very high yield topic. It, it, yeah. I mean, in neonatology, as you may all already know, it can always be infectious. So that's right. So that's right. It's not always. An infection. That, isn't that, isn't that true? When you talk to parents and you're like, it could be this, it could be this. We're always I tell parents, worried it could be infection. I tell parents that I, we are so frightened by infection mm-hmm. that it has led to a general paranoia in the NICU yeah. about infections. And so I say, and if anything looks like or could be an infection, we tend to take this extremely seriously and we just yeah. address them. Well, and, and I mean, the truth is symptoms in babies are so um, mm-hmm. vague is not the word, but they're nonspecific. All the symptoms of the nonspecific, all the symptoms of all the things could also be absolutely absolutely so we are um in volume wait let me let me volume three right we're on page 81 and um let's let's talk about mycobacterium tuberculosis so um one of the things that we must know obviously is that tuberculosis is difficult to grow um and its characteristic is that it's an acid fast bacillus um, that leads to a disease called tuberculosis. Now, the way it is transmitted is either congenitally or postnatally. If it is transmitted congenitally, which is extremely rare, it happens through hematogenous spread from an infected placenta or through aspiration or ingested of infected amniotic fluid. And I feel like it is extremely rare, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if the incidence of uh, congenital TB really varied depending on whether you looked at uh, developed versus developing countries, even though I don't really like those terms. But yeah, postnatal acquisition. But but they do like to test on it, even though it's Mm. not one of the most common things we see. So Easy question to drive, for sure. For sure. Um, Postnatal acquisition of um, TB can happen through inhalation of infected respiratory secretions or through contamination of uh, traumatized mucus mucous membrane or skin. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about clinical presentation. Um, the majority of symptoms in neonate with congenital infection usually present in the second or the third week of age. 
the symptoms are not really specific. We have hepatosplenomegaly. We can have some respiratory distress, some fever, some lymphadenopathy, uh, abdominal distension, lethargy, irritability, ear discharge, or skin papules. Um, there's a greater risk of dissemination in neonates compared with older children and adults, which is not really surprising. It's sort of the case for many other infections. Um, pregnant women with uh, pulmonary TB are unlikely to infect fetus, but can infect infant after delivery. And hence the, the, the difference in, in incidence of transmission from congenital to postnatal. If uh, a pregnant woman has bacteremia, this can lead to intrauterine uh, congenital TB. Now, how do we make the diagnosis? I'm gonna move some things around because I am not super comfortable here. Hold on. So, um, the um, uh, a PPD obviously is uh, is one of the ways to diagnose it. infected neonates to develop uh, positive PPD defined as more than ten millimeters only after an infection has been present for four to six months. And so, a negative PPD uh, requires repeat testing every two to three months. Uh, every two to three months, and a negative PPD does does not really exclude a diagnosis of tuberculosis. Um, interferon gamma response assay, uh, we have two types. We have the Ellis spot, which directly counts the number of interferon gamma secreting T lymphocytes, or the quantiferon gold, which measures the concentration of interferon gamma. Um, a chest x-ray is always a good idea. Acid fast bacilli staining and culture of the blood, urine, uh, three early gastric aspirates, tracheal aspirates, and spinal fluid. Uh, could be sent. Liver function tests typically are uh, abnormal only if we have disseminated disease. And then examination of the placenta, lymph nodes, liver, lung, bone marrow, skin lesions for pathology. Uh, and obviously, per uh, CDC recommendation, evaluation of every member of the household for TB. So um, there's a lot of things to do. And it doesn't seem like there's a clear path to diagnosing TB. So I think probably not the most high yield. I think maybe what I'm taking away from this, this part of the section is that the PPD is not going to be readily positive. And so a, a negative PPD right at birth is really not going to be synonymous with a, a, a negative result and that that should be followed. Everything else sort of follows a symptomatic overview of, uh, of tuberculosis. Now, in terms of, in terms of management, um, uh, after drug sensitivities are done, um, there are several approaches, obviously, uh, depending on who we're trying to treat. So if we're trying to treat a pregnant individual uh, with uh, TB, um, really the, the, the approach is going to be different, whether they are, um, if they are asymptomatic but have a positive PPD or, um, or uh, an interferon gamma response assay result, if they have maybe a negative sputum but negative uh, chest x-ray and had contact with contagious person, which basically, in other words, like a latent TB type of situation, the kind of stuff you deal with if you're a resident in uh, New York City. <laughs> you administer uh, isoniazid and peridoxine uh, to a pregnant individual starting in the second trimester for her duration of nine months. The reason I'm saying this is because this was, as a resident in New York, this was... Yeah, you saw a lot of it. 
yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I can share that. My wife, my wife, the zero converted as a resident, because you deal you deal with a lot of TB, mm-hmm. and then public transportation is terrible. As a resident, sure. obviously, you have no money. And I remember um, when I was a med student, uh, um, and I think the uh, the subway you take to get to Columbia Presbyterian, um, you need to go through an elevator to go to the tracks from the street, and mm. uh, that elevator is nicknamed the tuber the tuberculator. Because <laughs> this is where God. this is where you get it. Um, so yeah. Um, all right. If you have active disease, then isoniazid is is uh, used with rifampin and ifenbutol for six to nine months. We add peridoxine um, to prevent vitamin B six deficiency, um, and then again we have to isolate that person, notify the local health department. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about neonates. So a breastfeeding infant, if the mother is receiving isoniazid, there's no adverse neonatal effects that have been shown. So what if? What about the neonate? Let's say we're talking about an, a neonate that is asymptomatic, looks fine, the mother has a positive PPD or quantiferin or whatever, but there's no evidence of active infection in the mother, right? So you have a baby that looks okay, the mother may have some latent TB, um, but no, no real active infection. Um, the next question you should ask yourself is what does the chest X-ray of that mother looks like? If the mother has an abnormal chest X-ray and a positive PPD or quantiferin, well, sadly enough, you must separate the infant and the mother and confirm that the mother does not have active disease. You have to follow the algorithm uh, provided in the Red Book. If there's no active disease, then the infant is at a minimal risk of infection, and then you can let the baby stay with with his or her mother. Uh, you need to treat the mother appropriately. You have to monitor the infant with frequent clinical evaluation and obviously assess other household uh, household members for TB. Now, let's say the mother has the positive PPD. She's she's feeling fine. The baby is looking fine, and her chest X-ray is normal. Then. No need to separate mother and baby. No therapy is required for the infant. The mother can breastfeed. Um, you should still check other members of the household, but but that's probably a more ideal scenario. Now, let's say you have a baby that looks fine, right? No symptoms at birth. However, the mother has um, active infection. So despite the fact that the baby looks asymptomatic, you must evaluate the infant for TB. You administer isoniazid to the neonate until three to four months of age. At that time, you start placing MPPD in that infant. Remember, because it takes some time to turn positive, so we treat empirically. Now, if the PPD you're placing at that time is positive, you reassess the infant for TB. If there's no presence or signs of illness, then you still continue isoniazid for a total of nine months uh, with monthly clinical monitoring. Now, if the PPD you're putting in the baby is negative at three to four months of age and the mother has good adherence and response to therapy, then you can actually stop the treatment on the infant and repeat the PPD every two to three months for one year and yearly after that, and you monitor the neonate clinically. You um, isolate the infant from the mother if the mother is non-adherent with her treatment, if uh, she has significant respiratory symptoms, or if the mother has been diagnosed with multi-drug resistant TB. Um, and obviously you assess other household for TB per local health department. Um, before we get into uh, congenital TB, I think to me, um, there's a lot of information there. And I do think that the case that's most common 
is a baby that looks fine and a mother that has a positive PPD, right? And they're asking you, hey, what, what do you want to do, right? She, mm -hmm. The mother is fine. The mother has a positive PPD or positive quant gold even. The baby looks fine. What do you want to do next? And there may be some things in the answer that says separate baby from mother from baby, this and that, but get a chest X-ray on the mother, right? That should be the next step. Because mm -hmm. some of these algorithms about like continuing the medication for three months, nine months, I do feel like you could memorize those, right? It's not hard. It's not too hard. But I mean, how? And the, and they're not off limits, right? Like they're, they they would exactly be a reasonable right. question to ask. Mm -hmm. And it's not the most valuable piece of information. But to it's learn, not the most right? valuable. However, yeah. you knowing that you need a chest X-ray to then make the decision Correct. to separate the baby from the mother is that's uh, a biggie. It's a biggie, and it could be and a, a an and acute it, thing. And it could be a two-step question. Yeah. So it could be like, you know, when those those questions, I don't know if we had those on the board, actually. Did we? No. Where? No, right? You don't? Like the A, 34A, 34B. Yeah, no. where you get a question, and then they say, oh, you got the chest X-ray, and now the chest X-ray is negative. Mm -hmm. What do you do? And you can't go back anymore. That's right. right. <laughs> and you're like, I didn't get the chest X-ray. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I would uh, remember. Now let's talk about neonates with congenital TB. Um, that's not really high yield in my opinion. You should consult with local TB and infectious disease specialist, uh, specialists. You should isolate the neonate, perform drug susceptibility testing. You should initially treat with uh, isonized and, and rifampin and pyrazinamide. 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 Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> and an aminoglycoside, which is the four drug regimen for broad therapy. You can add corticosteroid if TB meningitis, and then the length of treatment depends on sensitivity and extent of disease. This feels like the sub question that is reserved for PEDS ID fellows taking their boards. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem like this is what they want mm. us to know. Um, what are some of the potential side effects of all the medication that we talked about? Isoniazid is the most frequent one. It has liver toxicity, peripheral neuropathy, and allergic reactivity. Rifempin also can lead to hepatotoxicity, emesis, low platelets, and orange color to body fluid. I remember that from the steps. That was a, that was so bizarre. For sure, for yeah. sure. You know, there aren't many medications that turn do your funny fluids yeah. to you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Perez, oh man, I'm blanking again. Perazinamide. Oh, oh my God. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Listen, you're saying it better than me. Um, <laughs> leads to uh, hepatotoxicity and hyperuricemia. Streptomycin is ototoxic and nephrotoxic, um, a bit like amino, other aminoglycosides. Um, EMB, a, um, I want to make sure I pronounce this one correctly as well. Uh, Ethambutol has uh, side effects that include optic neuritis and GI symptoms. And then amikacin, uh, as you may expect, uh, autotoxicity, vestibular toxicity, and nephrotoxicity. Now, the one thing that I found is a very fair type of question is the type of isolation you should recommend for babies depending on their levels of infection. TB is an interesting one because it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the few with airborne precautions. Mm -hmm. So uh, remember that. So if they ask you, how do you isolate a patient with TB? It's not uh, contact, it's not droplet, it's airborne, which means they are in a negative pressured room so that um, because you could, the droplets, can, the, the, the disease, the, the TB um, particles can, can be in the air. So negative pressured room, airborne precautions. 
right. Okay, buddy. That was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can fit in the clostridiums. Please. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. The clostridii. Oh, you're going to do both. That's I think so because ambitious. I think it's important to do them together because they're like opposites, but they sound alike. So I think sometimes people confuse them. So then maybe you just want to do pertussis and then we do those tomorrow. Okay, fine. Deal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's do bordetello pertussis. Um, bordetello pertussis is a gram negative pleomorphic bacillus that may lead to pertussis and humans are the only known host. So you may have thought that you didn't need to remember the gra the, the gram staining of, of uh, bacteria anymore, but that's not true. You should definitely uh, commit some of these biggies um, to memory for the test. So clinically, um, infants develop mild respiratory, uh, upper respiratory infection in the catarrhal stage um, that then progresses to the paroxysmal cough or the paroxysmal stage. They may or may not have the respiratory whoop. They may or may not have post-tussis emesis, um, and it may be accompanied by mild fever, and some babies um, present with apnea. So especially in our youngest babies and in the preterm population, they don't always present with those um, characteristic clinical features. So you have to pretty high index of suspicion. They may be complicated by pneumonia, seizures, or encephalopathy. So how do you diagnose it? Um, you culture the respiratory secretions using the Bordet Genju. <laughs> oh, you're muted. But I know you're going to tell me. Shoot. Sorry about that. Um, um, the, the, well, the, the Bordet-Jangu. Bordet-Jangu Bordet medium, yeah. But it's a, that's a French word. It's 100% French. <laughs> so I knew you were the right person to read it. Okay. You're welcome. Um, there is a PCR assay available. Um, and if you... Um, if you are some time from the symptoms, so three to four weeks after cough, you may then see the elevated serum IgG antibody to pertussis toxin. And one thing you might find on your CBC is this um, significant lymphocytosis. Um, and you may remember that from residency as well. So the management is oral erythromycin. Um, there is obviously some risk still of infantile hypertrophic pyloric stenosis given um, the use of oral erythromycin. So some um, teams are using azithromycin if less than one month of age. But note that azithromycin is not actually FDA approved for infants less than six months of age. And if you're able to administer um, the azithromycin or erythromycin during the catarrhal stage, which is the kind of just the upper respiratory infection stage, um, you may minimize the disease. If you're already into the stage of uh, the paroxysmal cough, then antibiotic therapy doesn't tend to alter the illness course, but it may decrease infectivity and limit spread of disease. So it's a, it's a disease that doesn't always present the way we expect it to in our little babies. And um, obviously, to get the most bang for your buck, you got to um, start antibiotics uh, early in, in uh, the illness before cough is detected. Um, 
infection control we were talking about earlier. This is kind of standard infection precautions and droplet precautions. And there is this is one of those where we have a pretty good time frame. So for five days after the medication is initiated or for three weeks after the cough if um, the infant does not receive any medication. So prevention, this is a biggie. Um, the vaccine is highly effective. It should be administered um, to all pregnant women during each pregnancy. So that's the Tdap. It's offered about the, the middle of the way during pregnancy, and it should be given during each pregnancy, even if they are in close proximity to one another. Uh, like I said, between 27 to 36 weeks gestation, and it should also be administered to all close contacts of the newborn, um, not just um, uh, the pregnant person. Okay? That sounds good. But I have a question for you, but now I lost my book. I'm sorry. Where's Very nice. <laughs> oh, I went away. We're, we're running a tight shop over here. It's been a, it's been a day. It's been a day. And I'm, I'm scolding you because guess what? I haven't even opened the PDF. So <laughs> sometimes making more noise helps cover. Uh, all right. Do you have a question? I could come up with a question. I have the book open. Okay. All right. Let me just uh, get this. All right. Do, 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 do. I have a question for you if you want. Okay. Yeah. I'm ready. ready. All right. So, so we're going to do. Uh, I don't know ID. why I lost the PDF. I don't know where it went. <laughs> how, how does one lose a PDF on their computer? I, I don't know how your computer works. It feels like an ocean. It because feels you like, like. How do you lose I things lose on the computer? I lose a lot of documents. How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery, but it is somewhere. <laughs> Unless you deleted it, it's somewhere. I don't think I, I deleted it. We use it right. every week. Um, infectious disease and immunology question 19. Which of the following statements is true about varicella mm. infection? But we didn't talk about varicella. Uh-huh. <laughs> you should have gotten your book up. All right. First. Oh, yeah. Okay. See? Question 19, which of the following statements is true about varicella infection? Choice A, all infants with congenital varicella syndrome should be placed in airborne and contact isolation. Choice B, an infant born to a mother who develops varicella between five days before delivery and until two days after delivery should receive varicella immunoglobulin. Choice C, if a mother develops varicella during pregnancy, she should receive varicella vaccine and varicella immunoglobulin. Globulin. Choice D, all of the above. I, I think it's all of the above. You gave me the time frame before, between five days until two days after. You would give the Verzig. It is airborne in contact. What was the third? I, it has to be all of the above. If if it's two, 
then it has to be all of the above. Okay. The answer is actually <laughs> just B, which is that an infant born to a mother who develops a varicella between five days before until right. two days after delivery should receive yes, varicella immunoglobulin. So right, because that's uh, the highest risk time. That's correct. If a mother develops varicella during pregnancy, she should only receive varic varicella immunoglobulin, not... Oh, I don't have... I have to scroll back up if I want to find the other choices. Sorry. Um, the pregnant woman with a history of varicella should receive the vaccine after delivering. Infants born to mother who develop varicella between five days before delivery and until two days after delivery are at the greatest risk of varicella infection because there is insufficient time for protective antibodies to cross to the fetus. Thus, these infants should receive VZIG, the varicella immunoglobulin. They may mm -hmm. also be given to infants who are exposed to varicella, varicella infection postnatally if their mothers do not have a history of chickenpox and are seronegative and the infants are less than 28 weeks postmenstrual age, regardless of the maternal history. Infants mm -hmm. with congenital varicella syndrome do not require airborne end contact as long as they are no active lesion. That's sort of why I picked this question because we did talk mm. about airborne and stuff. So the baby in the question stem is, um, is not symptomatic. This is a little confusing because in our review book that I have open here. Oh, God. It says infection control. <laughs> Standard precautions as well as airborne and contact for the neonate born to a mother with varicella. Was that not, not the question? You're going to have to read the answer choice again. There's something that we missed in the answer choice. Sure. Choice A says, all infants with congenital varicella syndrome should be placed in airborne and contact isolation. I guess it's this. Inf so I'm pulling this up the right book. I <laughs> But I guess this is two different things. One is a suspected maternal infection, mm -hmm. and one is infants with varicella embryopathy, so congenital varicella, do not need to be placed in isolation if they do not have active lesions. Right. Uh-huh. I thought it was a question about maternal infection, but this is a baby we think has congenital varicella. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Because they're no long, potentially no longer infectious if their if their um uh, lesions have healed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah. If you are satisfied with the answer, I will stop browsing the red book. Let me see. But I think this is useful to do. If you get to a question that like is a little confusing and you're studying, you just like figure out why it was confusing. Mm -hmm. Then you learn it. All right, buddy. See you tomorrow. Bye, buddy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.